Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we talk through the conflict in Afghanistan and the role we played as Australians. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa Di Grazia. And welcome back to yet another episode of Australia Explained. We'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm recording this podcast on the lands of the Yoruba people, and Tanya is on much colder Wurundjeri land. <laughs> we pay our respects to their elders past, present and future, and just a reminder that an acknowledgement of country, it's not just a technicality, it's a genuine thought of, hey, I'm in this land, how awesome, I'm so grateful. So we urge you to take a look at what land you're on, look into the history of it, what the nation is like now, um, think of it as more than just a sentence. Yeah, absolutely, and how we can play into our everyday lives too. So today's episode was widely requested. We are looking into the recent and very harrowing scenes that have played out in the media about Afghanistan. And to be honest, the news cycle in general has been very rough lately, and this just added another... I guess, um, negative part to it. It hasn't been the most pleasant thing to view and, you know, all this conflict that's happening in Afghanistan at the moment. Yeah, and just a bit of a tangent of a reminder that you can clock out of the news if you are feeling overwhelmed, um, especially the past couple of weeks, COVID and this international conflict stuff. If you need a break, take a break. That's fine. Um, back to Afghanistan, we're remembering that these horrific scenes and these videos we've been seeing are real people, you know, they're real lives and they're in this situation because of many, many decisions that have been made politically over a number of years. Um, and the public often doesn't notice conflict until it's too late. For example, this happening in Afghanistan and lots of people turning around saying, what's happening? How have I never heard about this? Um, which is definitely not the fault of your average person, but yeah, just really wanted to point out that today we're going to be talking about what led up to this, um, and this applies to any conflict that happens ever. Yeah, and look, like you said, it's not to the fault of any of you listening that you haven't kept up with this, but it, it does highlight, I guess, the intricacies of our news media cycle, what is covered, and also some of the decisions that our leaders and our political figures decide to talk about and not talk about. So, we will, you know, as this is Australia Explained, we'll try and explain it in a bit of an Aussie context, but also give you a bit of a wider um, range of information about what has happened in the country. Yeah, we'll talk about the history, the present, maybe even a little bit of the future. <laughs> and I love episodes like this because my politics degree actually comes to good use. I've written so many things about this war, so I was <laughs> would- born for this episode. Yeah, straight away you're like, I can spit out the first half in no in, in, in a second. It's no issue. I was like, go for it. Uh, but, yeah, this is a really good use of both our degrees, you with your politics, me with my history, and we can sort of bring it together to give you um, the wider image. So let's get into it. Okay, the question that everyone has been asking is, what on earth has happened in Afghanistan and why? So... 
The US has been involved in Afghanistan since the 50s. So the Soviet Union, as Russia was called back then, and the US exerted a lot of soft power over Afghanistan, which basically means they used money to win power. They built bridges, roads, all sorts of infrastructure, that sort of thing. And this was right in the middle of the Cold War. So the US and the Soviet Union, they were trying to beat each other out. You know, they did this pretty often back in the day. They fought proxy wars all over the place in Afghanistan, Vietnam and Korea, to name a few. Yeah, and the reason why the Cold War is called a Cold War is because no actual direct conflict happened between the US and the Soviet Union. Like you said, it was a lot of soft power where they tried to influence countries in different regions. And whilst there was war in places like Korea and Vietnam, the US and the Soviet Union were often on opposite sides uh, backing their individual countries and allies so um, that's why we call it a Cold War and, and, you know, no direct military conflict resulted between the two countries. But it wasn't until the 1970s that this cold, soft power war uh, shifted from just building infrastructure and having an influence to full-out military intervention. So in 1978, a communist government was established in Afghanistan with the support of the Soviets, obviously, because they were communist. And this is when the United States essentially said, hey, let's step in here. This is bad. We don't want the spread of communism to happen. Is that exactly what they so said? So the US, <laughs> yes. Quote. You know, we've just abridged, abridged version here. Um, so the United States started throwing money at a bunch of different resistant groups in Afghanistan to fight back against the communist government. Yeah, and a year later, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, the US decided to fully support one resistance group instead of a whole bunch. And this group was called the Mujahideen. So the Mujahideen was made up of four smaller groups that had slight variations in their ideas. Some were just normal people, really, that were trying to fight against the government. But some parts were militant extremists who had some pretty troublesome tactics to our standards, for example, throwing acid at victims' faces. And the US leaned towards funding these extremists. And it's not necessarily because they agreed with these ideas. Um, They weren't exactly backing throwing acid at people's faces. But CIA documents complain that the average people in the Mujahideen were lazy and never on time. So really, it was an admin thing because the passionate sex of the Mujahideen, the extremists, they were easier to train. They showed up, they tried hard, and they really cared. Yeah, and I guess that decision comes to haunt them today. And there's a bunch of other things that happened here around this time. And if you want the full details, read the Vox article that's linked in the show notes. But essentially, but essentially after a bunch of meddling in the resistance movement of Afghanistan, in the late 80s, the Soviets and the United States both withdrew from Afghanistan. And this left what we call a power vacuum. When leaders disappear and a bunch of different groups then scramble for power. And history tells us that this very often leads to civil war, so different groups within a country fighting against each other. And that's exactly what happened uh, in Afghanistan. So the country crumbles into chaos and warlords pop all over the country. So warlords are like local leaders that use small armies to gain control of a part of the countryside or something like that. 
So one of the major groups that emerges in this period are what we now know as the Taliban. So they were formed from a bunch of Mujahideen fighters, plus students that were studying in seminaries, and they quickly took over much of the country. So this transition from the Mujahideen to the Taliban is the reason why you might hear people say that the US funded the Taliban, which they sort of did unintentionally and unintentionally, sorry, and indirectly, because we can't be sure that they wouldn't have formed regardless, but we do know that they wouldn't have nearly the same amount of weapons, resources, training, and power. And a great lesson in politics is clear here that actions can have great unintended consequences, and that's the risk of meddling in the first place. Yeah, and just a brief note, it also highlights the dangers of using such rhetoric because we have often heard that, oh, the US funded the Taliban, the US funded the Taliban as if it was an intentional decision. But like you said, it it was just these indirect consequences of their meddling. So just be weary to maybe fact check some of your friends or when we you do hear that rhetoric. Uh, because, you know, as much as we don't agree with this sort of meddling from Western democracy and, and, and Western countries, um, There are some dangerous effects of using that language, but that's what we're trying to clarify here. So the Taliban run a sort of government for over 10 years and they limited all sorts of freedoms in their strict interpretation of Sharia law. So women were not allowed to go to school, men were forced to wear long beards, all these, you know, small intricacies. But then in 2001, we know that 9-11 happens and the US is absolutely seething at this point. And nine days after 9-11, George Bush, the president, um, changes millions of lives forever when he says the war on terror starts today. And you know, we find it kind of interesting that people say 9-11 changed the world uh, because it did. Uh, but not really. It's more the response from 9-11 that really changed our global landscape. Yeah, now we get to the question, why did the US invade Afghanistan? And there's a couple of reasons we'll run you through. So first and foremost, they wanted to capture Osama bin Laden, who was credited with the 9-11 attacks. Um, Osama isn't actually from Afghanistan at all, but he was hiding in the country. Um, So when the US negotiated with Afghanistan, Afghanistan offered to hand him over on the condition that he would be able to go to a different country than the US and stand trial. But the United States refused. So this is why they claim they invaded. They needed to capture him and bring him to the States for a trial. Second, and more as a justification, the United States claimed disgust at the repressive policies of the Taliban and stood proud that they were spreading democracy. Mind you, this is not the first time that the United States government has done this. It goes right back uh, to the days of Woodrow Wilson, to, you know, being a hallmark of Western democracy and a representation of what government needs to look like. This is a very repeated um, phrase in, in American politics throughout different presidents. And so after the Taliban offered to hand over bin Laden, they needed another reason. And it's funny how we can see in hindsight how these big declarations, you know, the war on terror, um, spreading democracy, they turn out to be grand but very empty ideas. Yeah, and a third reason was never claimed publicly, but it can be read in internal discussions with the president. 
that were released, I'm not sure what year, but a while after the invasion. And these discussions talk about how they wanted power in the region. To control Afghanistan would give them a great centre of power in the Middle East, which is a place that Australia, um, the US sorry, doesn't have many military bases. Um, it's close to many countries they felt threatened by, and it was a big strategic move. Yeah, so after the United States invaded, the Taliban fell very quickly. And since 2001, Afghanistan has been under a democratic government that's been propped up by the United States forces. Troops began to withdraw from Afghanistan under Barack Obama. And this continued with Trump. And this year, under the new president, Joe Biden, there were only a couple thousand left. But since the withdrawal, the Taliban has rapidly increased power again and, you know, it's happening again. We have to remember that they were literally trained from the American manual, not directly, but indirectly, yes. Anybody could see that the US's failure in Vietnam and how the public turned on the occupation and demanded the withdrawal of troops um, anyone with hindsight, that is. And they were willing to wait for the same to happen in Afghanistan. The Taliban were waiting for the public to turn on the conflict and for them to have their chance. And this is exactly what happened. Americans didn't want to be paying for the occupation anymore. They were paying with money and they were paying in lives and it couldn't go on forever. So essentially, the 20 years of invasion was a bit of a temporary band-aid because it didn't address any of the long-standing political problems and once the US ripped the Band-Aid off recently, the blood started pouring again. Yeah, and like you said, it it does take hindsight to, to look at into these issues and what happened. And some people say that history doesn't repeat itself, history does repeat itself, but perhaps this is an example of history perhaps coming back to haunt us. So we've gone much more international than we usually do on this pod. So let's let's bring it back home. Let's really do. <laughs> like, how was Australia involved? So the Howard government, who was in power at the time, decided to become involved in Afghanistan right after 9-11 in 2001, um, at the same time as the United States. And this was due to the ANZUS Treaty between Australia, New Zealand and the United States. And this treaty ensured that each of these countries would defend each other against significant threats and terrorist attacks. And we call this mutual defence. And just to add a point here, even though we do have this treaty and we're supposed to be allies, one of the only times Australia independently was involved in a conflict, aka they weren't tagging along with the US or the UK, was when East Timor was fighting for independence against Indonesia and we dropped in to help the cause. And we submitted a request to the US um, asking them to help us, and they refused. So I think it's a bit of a one-way treaty. Hmm, But it wasn't in this case um, because they did enact that clause. And so Australia's involvement in the Afghan war was actually the first time that this mutual defence reason was used um, as a way to involve themselves in a war. Actually, the first time since the treaty was established back in 1952. And at the time, Prime Minister Howard claimed the goal was, quote, to seek out and destroy Al-Qaeda, which was bin Laden's group, and ensure that Afghanistan can never again serve as a base from which terrorists can operate, 
end quote. That point about hindsight, that sounds so ridiculous now in 2021, but I, you can feel the hope and the determination at the time. They have no idea what's ahead of yeah. them. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Moving on, by January 2002, around 150 Special Forces personnel were in Afghanistan working alongside the US and European troops to thwart the, te- the threat of the Taliban and al-Qaeda simultaneously. Um, but in November of the same year, the ADF troops arrived back in Australia due to an apparent insufficient amount of tasks to do. Yeah, and this is interesting because it coincided with the lead up to the Iraq war, which broke out not that far ahead in March 2003, only a few months later. And we don't know whether there was a link between the withdrawal of troops in Afghanistan and the emergence of the Iraq war, but Prime Minister Howard has emphasised that there was not, although this is debated. In the years following, the Taliban began to resurge around 2005 and the special forces went back to Afghanistan, this time with 3,000 regular SAS troops over the next decade. They were back with a lot more force. Australian troops were predominantly located in the Uruzgan province and they were involved in mentoring, operational and reconstructive activities. So this means a lot of different things, but mainly they were working with the Afghan army to train troops, ensuring stability in the major cities and doing counter-terrorism. Yeah, and... Once again, this falls into a larger discussion because the Afghan war was largely considered a good war, in quotation marks, um, especially in comparison to the Iraq war that was happening at the same time. And Australia's involvement in Iraq was widely considered as illegal in the eyes of international law. Essentially, there was no concrete evidence that Iraq held the weapons of mass destruction that George Bush Jr. claimed to believe and which offered them the reason to invade Iraq in the first place. I think Afghanistan could only be called a good war if it was compared to Iraq because the intentions going in were also pretty murky, but definitely in comparison. Moving forward into 2007, attention was brought back onto the Australians in Afghanistan, especially as more reports of soldiers' deaths started to surface. I remember when I was a kid seeing them on the news and they would show the soldier and soldier's family and the body being sent back home, which is a memory that I've unlocked writing this episode. Yeah, with the flag. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't thought about that in a while. Um, And it wasn't until October 2013 that Tony Abbott, who was PM at the time, claimed that our war was, quote, over. And he began a very slow, gradual release of troops. Um, The last troops were removed in July 2021, last month, right before the Taliban returned. So by the end of Australia's involvement in Afghanistan, there were 41 combat-related deaths amongst Australian soldiers, with an additional 260 wounded and 500 veteran suicides since 2001. I will note, though, that not all those suicides are from um, Afghanistan, Afghanistan particularly, but you know it is interesting to note that they do occur since 2001 when we, 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 when, when we became involved. The war cost Australians around $10 billion and especially with the events of the last month, we're questioning whether it was effective. And when ScoMo gave his press conference after the Taliban came into power, he did have to speak 
on this a little bit and he wanted to reassure the families of veterans that they weren't fighting in vain and and that their fighting had a purpose because it did look as though everything they had achieved just vanished. On your note about the achievements of soldiers, the Afghan war was actually in our media cycle this year due to the Burriton report on war crimes being released. Um, It specifically investigated reports of Australian troops killing 39 Afghan civilians and involving young soldiers in a blooding process, which is kind of like an initiation where they were allegedly required to kill an Afghan detainee. Yeah, and throughout the report is a culture of cover-ups within the ADF force, whereby some of the Australian soldiers would very heavily sanitise operational reports, meaning that they hid their actions on the battlefields quite a bit. But perhaps one of the biggest shocks was that the war crime report implicated one of our most decorated Afghan soldiers, Ben Robert Smith, who had also received the highest possible honour of the Victoria Cross for his duties in Afghanistan. So I guess it's safe to say after the events of the past month, the impacts of the Afghan war have not only hit us in a military way, but have also left us considering our moral compass on the battlefield and whether we live up to our national identity of being brave and and honourable men. Yeah, we definitely plan to do an episode on this when more information comes out regarding the trials following the Burriton Report, so stay tuned. Okay, so we've discussed Australia, but now let's bring it back to a global context. How has the world responded to the Taliban resurgence in Afghanistan, um, also including back home? So there was a very clearly an emotional outpour in response to the resurgence of the Taliban. It flooded social media and so many people were concerned that all the progress Afghanistan had made over the past 20 years would diminish. And the first question a lot of people asked, well, Why doesn't the US do something about this? You know, why did they leave if this was bound to happen? Yeah, and one of the first responses came from US President Joe Biden, um, stating that we did not go to Afghanistan to nation build, and it's the right and the responsibility of the Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country. Basically, in that quote, Joe Biden is saying that the US government was not prepared to stay in Afghanistan forever and they needed to leave at some point. Biden claimed that the US Army did all it could to ensure that the Afghan government could hold itself up alone and basically it was up to them. So a lot of people perceive this as basically deserting the cause here. And however, since the invasion, Biden has stated that he will attempt to negotiate with all the parties in Afghan and try to come to some sort of diplomatic resolution. It's funny how he says we did not go to Afghanistan to nation build because they did go to Afghanistan to nation build. That's what George Bush was intending to do. But that was in 2001 when the idea of spreading democracy and those things we were talking about earlier were really popular worldwide. So it's interesting how Biden has completely shunned that idea. Um, It really shows how much our political values have changed. Most people just don't support meddling in other countries' political affairs any longer. The statement 
from Joe Biden is actually a general sentiment that's reflected by a lot of countries worldwide. There is a lot of hesitance to actually re-engage in Afghanistan and deploy troops again. Everyone seems to be standing back a little bit. And the last thing any country wants right now is to elongate what, what already has been a two-decade-long issue. So, for example, the British Defence Secretary has claimed that going back to Afghanistan is not on the cards. And even so, Australia and New Zealand have offered vague claims of holding the Taliban accountable for any bad deeds that they may commit. But neither Jacinta Ardern or ScoMo have quite stated what this will look like. Is it a full-blown intervention or is it just these, these diplomatic discussions like Joe Biden stated? And the fact that Afghanistan probably shouldn't have been invaded in the first place doesn't mean that meaningful action can't be taken now. So there is potential for countries to intervene by helping people evacuate from Afghanistan, offering aid and resources to the people there, and also imposing sanctions upon the Taliban to suppress their power. So a sanction is when you put a ban on things such as trade, money loans, or anything else economically that could help to suffocate the Taliban government. It makes it really hard for them to rule when they can't participate in the global economy. So it basically isolates them in the hope that they will change their behaviour and want to be more cooperative. But this does also have negatives because sanctions on countries can be really hard for the people that are still living there, especially those that work in international industries. Yeah, and... I want to go back to the idea of helping people leave Afghanistan. There has been quite a bit of a discussion here around Australia's efforts to evacuate people from the country. So far, 4,000 people have been evacuated by the Australian government, but these flights have now ceased, especially as the Taliban enforced a deadline until yesterday to have all foreign flights out of the country. Australia has a lot of problems with flights, flight getting people home for COVID, getting people out of Afghanistan, mm. just an aviation mess the past year. Um, <laughs> and this migration will be just as tricky or getting trickier as the situation in Afghanistan is intensifying and access to the main airport is becoming more and more dangerous. Yeah, and I want to quickly note that um, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, she also said that migration isn't the way to solve this issue. Back in 2015, um, the German government let in a lot of migrants from around the world and it sort of led to like this population boom and they were struggling to keep up with visas and stuff like that. So I think she is looking back in hindsight and thinking that's not the way to solve this issue here. So there is a bit of a debate here about what's the most effective way to support the people in Afghanistan. But one thing I want to reflect on is the difference between the responses of some of our global leaders now compared to our past leaders. And this whole situation got me thinking that gone are the days where presidents and prime ministers broke down to such news and offered heartfelt responses because this whole situation in Afghanistan and the responses of ScoMo, Biden, Merkel and so many other leaders around the world made me think back to our own Prime Minister Bob Hawke back in 1989 following the Tiananmen Square protests. If you don't know about these, Tiananmen Square is in Beijing and this was a moment in time where the government unleashed army tanks and military weapons onto student protesters. And Bob Hawke held a televised press conference at the time where he cried on screen 
and he immediately granted asylum to 42,000 Chinese nationals and students. And I recently read a quote on Instagram by Bob Hawke reflecting upon this decision, and he said that a lot of people were questioning him, saying that he couldn't do this, but he refused to consult anyone about this, and he just turned around and said, I've, it's done. I've, I've done it. And I think it's so telling that nowadays we wouldn't quite see that response. Yeah, it's such a polarizing difference. You know, there's so many nowadays, things are so bureaucratic. There's allegiances, treaties, international interests, global friends, just the expectation of the public as the prime minister being someone very professional that would negate the possibility of that ever happening. So lastly, what can we expect the future to look like now that the Taliban is in control? So all eyes are on the Taliban to see where they go from here. And to be honest, we kind of just have to wait and let it play out, which might not seem like the best approach for international affairs, but it's just the most true. Um, They have promised Mm. not to impose on the rights of women and allow the country to maintain its progress as long as it aligns within Sharia law. Safe to say, though, not many people are optimistic about this. And quick note, I feel like we've had lots of quick notes today, and this is going to be a really long episode, (laughs) but... With Sharia law, while these sorts of restrictions to freedom do technically come under Sharia law, there are lots of countries that have Sharia law integrated into their legal systems that don't have the discrimination and the restrictions that you see in countries like Afghanistan now or Saudi Arabia. For example, Indonesia and Malaysia have a lot of Islamic um, judicial principles, legal principles, and those are countries that absolutely champion gender equality. So just want to really clear up that distinction that Sharia law and Islamic law does not necessarily mean um, oppression or restrictions of freedom with the Taliban. It definitely does, though. On a more global scale, though, Afghanistan presents a few challenges and there's a great article written by the ABC, which we'll link in our show notes, that sums up how the Taliban and the new situation in Afghanistan can affect the global landscape, particularly because the country holds a very important position on the map and it offers a gateway between Asia and Europe. Yeah, politics is actually pretty simple because it's often about geography. Like there's a reason that Afghanistan is always in conflict and Australia isn't because we're an island that's far away from everybody and Afghanistan is in the middle (laughs) of every resource that everybody wants. (laughs) It's quite yeah. simple. Um, back to the topic. In a modern Cold War type of way, the world is concerned that the impact of the Taliban will spread into nearby countries and everyone wants to avoid that type of extremism rising. Um, there's also $1.3 trillion worth of minerals in Afghanistan that make it a place where a lot of countries want a part of. Yes, so they want to remain friendly in Afghanistan, but they also want to keep Afghanistan under control. So this doesn't really apply to Australia because we closed our Afghan embassy in May, but China, Russia and Pakistan remain in the country for different reasons. Um, Some professors and academics are saying that China would want to work with the Taliban, especially as the two countries share a very small border with the autonomous Chinese territory called Xinjiang. 
This part of the country holds the Uyghur people, which is a Turkish Muslim ethnic group. Um, They're subject to a whole lot of human rights abuses by the Chinese government in the hopes of squashing any attempt for them to become an independent country. So there are some fears in China that the Taliban could spread into Xinjiang. If they decide to support the Uyghurs um, in a conflict, they could definitely move against China. So By staying in good relations with the Taliban, and the Taliban really needs international friends right now, um, they're trying to avoid the possibility of that happening. Yes. So the the fear here is that the Chinese government don't want the Taliban to come into Xinjiang, support the separatists and, you know, remove a territory away from China. They want to keep the country somewhat unified. Um, So that's why it's best that China stays all goody-goody with the Taliban for now. Russia also fears that this instability um, and this chance of extremism could also seep into their country. And we know how strong Russia is held down by Putin's government, and he would definitely not like any resistance growing. We've seen how the Russian government responds to um, protesters and people who are very vocal against the Russian government. Um, so they would want to keep the Taliban on on good on a good hand just so they don't spread into the country and spread any extremism. Um, and it's a similar story for Pakistan. They want to remain friendly with their neighbours but also err on the side of caution so that they are not isolated by the rest of the world, especially India and China, who um, affect a lot of their international policy. Yeah, and the Prime Minister or the President, I'm not sure um, which one it is, of Pakistan, I saw him the other day overtly congratulating the Taliban and saying that it was great that the country had finally been returned to freedom um, in comparison to being controlled by the US, which was an interesting kind of look at um, we're so used to a Western media perspective of, oh, obviously the Taliban is bad, that it's weird to remember that a lot of countries would be viewing this and saying, oh, um, Afghanistan's got their self-governance back. Overall, it's a developing situation and one that will continue to dominate our media cycle, I'm sure, for years to come, honestly, as we see the effects of the Taliban rule both inside the country and on global relations. Yeah, and just a brief note, as for Australia, we may want to remain careful of our rhetoric here about, you know, you know, ScoMo has already spoken about the Taliban exploiting human rights and and what their behaviours have been like in the past. So we don't know how this will be received by Afghanistan in the future and how they will react to some of Australia's comments and the comments left by a lot of Western countries. Um, So we may want to just remain cautious there. And we definitely need to wait. The Taliban haven't ruled in 20 years and I'm sure that they've changed. So hopefully they've changed for the better. Um, We'll see that in the coming months. And now it's time for our recommendations. Tanya, what have you got? Swapping it up today, I go first. Um, I'm actually going to link everyone to that video of Bob Hawke speaking after the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989, just because I don't think I've seen an Australian Prime Minister react since. Um, And, you know, it brings us back to a lot of discussions, particularly I think back to the 2019 to 2020 bushfire season and there was a lot of discussion about how ScoMo was responding to that and how he was showing his heartfelt 
responses in quotation marks. So I think it is strange to see an Australian Prime Minister react the way Hawke did because I can't remember the last time I saw someone within our own country act like that. I'm pretty sure you've told me to watch that video before and I watched it Um, because who else would have recommended that to me? (laughs) Okay, so my recommendation today is Afghanistan's largest independent news agency. It's called Pajwak. Um, As you know, we are an independent news outlet and sometimes we're reading international news. When we're reading it off Aussie websites, we're always getting that Australian perspective. So I've spoken about it on the pod before. Um, The the benefits you get out of reaching out and going to like specific countries. For example, I follow Chinese news, Indian news, et cetera, et cetera. And this is available in English. So if you do want to get your head around what's happening in Afghanistan, where better to go than an Afghan website um, that caters the Afghan perspective exactly? Although we're unsure as to how media will run in Afghanistan from now on. I know the Taliban has taken over a few national um companies and organisations. So it'll be interesting to see how independent news is affected. But of course, we always advocate that you support for independent news and and you get that perspective. Uh, We'll leave all the links to these resources in our show notes as per usual. But that's it from us today. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode that you also strongly recommended. Let us know what you think or if you have any more questions about Afghan because we know that it's constantly developing and it can be quite confusing to wrap your head around Um, and we're always interested to hear your thoughts too. And thank you to everyone who's reviewed us on Spotify or Apple Music. We really appreciate it. Um, As we said before, best thing to do to help us out is to follow, subscribe and leave a review. Um, In the meantime, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram at Australia Explained Pod. All the info we've talked about today is in the show notes for you to check out. See you in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye.